Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Show podcast. She is the owner of a parody account on Twitter. She set that aside to talk about Canadian patriotism or tweet about Canadian patriotism. We call her hero. Keystone XL Pipeline's new route is being challenged by an American judge. I spoke with Dennis McConaughey, the former TransCanada Executive Vice President. After yesterday's interview with Andrew Scheer concerning Maxime Bernier's Trudeau diversity tweets, J.J. McCullough joined us, political cartoonist, Washington Post columnist and pundit. Kaylee Cresta is a big name in the world of beauty. She's also a sufferer with chronic pain. She has an illness which will freeze her muscles and then it can break her bones. I spoke with her about that condition and the fact that opioid medications are being denied pain patients. Chicago Tribune columnist Rex Hupke and his dog Zoe combined for a column titled A Dog's Letter to President Trump. Stop calling humans dogs. I spoke with Rex Hopke, not with Zoe, but with Rex. Listen. Let's start with this. Uh, we're going to call her a hero because she is a hero today, today to me. That's what happens when you say today and me together comes up to D. Uh, it's an abbrev- abbreviation of her first name, Hero. And uh, she has a parody account on Twitter, but this week she sent out an eight-part tweet about her patriotism, her love of Canada, her Canadian experience, and it begins with the immigration of her parents. And uh, Hero, thank you so much for for joining us and being willing to talk about this. Your this we want to make it clear this isn't your parody personality talking. This is you. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great. So, what uh, what what caused you to decide to step away from the parody person and write the, uh, the this 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 description of Canada and patriotism? Well, it's not the first time I've done it. I did it after the shooting in, in Danforth as well, right? Like, there there are po- points in the country where you just have to kind of step away from the parody self and look at how you want your kids to grow up, Yeah. right? And so that's what inspires these tweets for me. <laughs> well, it, it certainly created a great deal of feedback from other folks who have parody accounts. Yeah. But it also created a great deal of feedback. I saw many emails from listeners uh, across the country who read the tweet and uh, fell in love with it, and yeah. and other other people who tweeted as well. I'm sure you you saw that. So could I ask you to read what you wrote? Absolutely. Please go ahead. Canada today. Now I am not speaking to you as my parody here. It is a very different place. I was born and raised here by two loving parents who came here legally. I have their citizen certificates to prove it as well. I have always been a proud, proud to be Canadian, laughing at people who asked about our igloos, dog sleds, and how we were able to handle the freezing cold. There were many myths that brought us all together as a country. We laughed at Americans who would travel through Europe wearing Canadian flags so they would get treated better. Laughed when people made fun of our military knowing that we had never been defeated. There was a pride, a Canadian spirit that couldn't be broken. We were taught in school how multiculturalism made a mosaic that was beautiful, and the people coming here were proud to stand up and call themselves Canadian. We never thought about any different about anyone who was different than us. We still played with them on the playground. There has been a shift of late, though. This Canada is not the same. There is division. There is no harmony. There is no Canadian spirit. Somehow we have become self-hating and unapologetic. It is as if we were told that being proud of our country is a bad thing, that we should squash the things that we should be celebrating. This is Canada, and if you are proud to be Canadian, stand up and say it. It doesn't make you a racist. It doesn't make you a Nazi. It makes you Canadian. We are all the same. We all bleed the same blood. We are wanting the Canadian way to stay intact. We want to be proud of our country. We want to stand together and show the world that we are united. You can be tolerant. You can be apologetic. You can also stand for the values of Canada. The respectful saying sorry lovingly, A, repeatedly, and no, sorry. The respectful saying sorry loving, A, repeating people that we are. We have core values. We love our country. We want to stand up 
for it without being called names when we are patriots. I want my children to grow up in the Canada that I did. This is the reason people come to Canada. They want to, they see what we are and want to be part of it. Do you want me to read the hashtags too? Sure. (laughs) Stand up for Canada. Be strong for Canada. Live like a Canadian. Sorry for loving my country. I'm not, I'm not sorry, but I must say sorry. Canadian compulsion. You know, sometimes it just takes a reminder. We got so caught up in in the negativity, and that can happen, that it requires a reminder, and you provided a really conclusive reminder of the daily things, the events in our lives, uh, newcomer and not newcomer, the daily things, the events in our lives that make us Canadian, the history that made us who we are today and gives us a basis to travel forward from. When What is it that troubles you most about what's been said or not said or what, what's troubling you most about what is dividing this country? You know, growing up, it was so different. We were all so unified. And now it's either your alternate right or alternate left, right? Like, there, there's no in-between there. There's no... If if you say you're for Canada, you're evil or racist. If you say you want to bring everybody in, you're or you know you don't you you want to give people all these chances or whatever, you're totally far left, right? Like it, there's just no unity anymore, and that's what hurts me as a Canadian is is that I my kids who are growing up in this country who are second generation Canadians are not going to have that same unity that I felt growing up. Yeah, and what do you tell them? Um, well, as I have two three-year-olds, I don't tell them much because they don't really understand. Mm-hmm. But my 16-year-old, he uh, he loves his country, and he he stands up to people who try to tell him he's a racist by saying, no, I just... I just love it. And, I mean, he's come home from school some days just absolutely upset because somebody called him a Nazi for loving his country. That is scary. Right. That is really scary. When a 16-year-old comes home from school upset because he expresses his love for Canada, and by doing so, or for doing so, he's called a Nazi, that just says that whoever's instructing our kids in too many, in too many cases is doing a terrible job. Yeah. So I, I just tell him, you know what, you, you can love your country, you can love Canada, you can express all these things. I said, but in this world right now, you you have to understand there's going to be pushback and people are going to call you names. And that's just the way that Canada is right now. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for joining us on the show. And I'm Thank looking forward for to going me. back and checking out your, uh, your parody account. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you so much. That's Hero and uh, her her tribute to this country. The uh, court, a court in the United States has ruled that the Keystone XL pipeline's new route through Nebraska has to be uh, examined and uh, on environmental impact issues and on the uh, the rights they have to choose that particular route. As I understand it, Dennis McConaughey is the former Trans-Canada Executive Vice President, the um, pipeline company, and he's the author of Dysfunction. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Uh, Dennis, perfect name for the, uh, for the book, Dysfunction. This, yes, thank you. Yeah, the, uh, the, the judgment, the ruling by, the, uh, by the, the court in the in the United States. Put that into perspective for us, please. Uh, what I think your listeners need to understand is that when Donald Trump first <clears throat> issued the permit to finally cross the Canadian border, which was that long-awaited permit that Barack Obama was never willing to provide. That, that occurred back in the second quarter of 2017. Uh, and that was based on an environmental assessment that had been done back in 2014 that presumed a route through Nebraska that avoided the famous or infamous Nebraska Sandhills and bleakly ran through the state. About six months after Donald Trump gave that permit, the actual... Nebraska state regulator, akin to our National Energy Board, gave TransCanada a route through the state, but a different route, not the oblique route, but one that was more perpendicular, running across the north uh, borders of the state and then straight down 
the eastern border. Because of that route change, some of the elements in the United States and the environmental movement that are implacably opposed to that project went to a favorable court, this occasion, a court in the state of Montana, saying that this route change was a material event and in the environmental assessment underpinning the project needed to be redone. And that argument was accepted to some degree by this judge in Montana and his decision occurred or rendered last last week. And what he is expecting is the, the Trump administration through the Department of State will actually remedy that by doing uh, more work to determine that this new route has you know, minimal environmental impacts relative to the one that TransCanada had proposed and the one that the Donald Trump permit to cross the border was predicated on. Okay. So uh, let me stop there. Yeah, now that's key, the context of the thing. Thank you. Now, Keystone was to start operating later this year, moving 830... No, Keystone was to start construction this year. This year, yeah. That's so the, the XL portion of it was to start construction yeah. late this year, yeah. and this decision has the potential of perhaps delaying construction that now is more likely going to start in the first quarter of next year. So um, let me just make this point, which is important, is that the Department of State has already done some work related to the assessment of the environmental impacts of this new route. They've had to do this in order to provide other permits that are necessary for TransCanada that are required by other agencies of the U.S. government. And this, this environmental assessment has already been out in public for public comment for about 30 days. And one would be hopeful that this environmental assessment that is already in the public domain would suffice if the Department of State puts it in front of this judge and says, we've already basically done what you've asked. And on a review of that assessment, that should be adequate for you not to disrupt any of the existing permits, etc., so there is a possibility that the remedy of this judge's order could be relatively straightforward and not too disruptive to the timeline on this project, which at this point we would all hope would be under construction in the first quarter of next year. Now, is there such a thing as a final nail? You know, the the well, proverbial final the, nail in the, the coffin? The pernicious part of our times and what is so dysfunctional is that it is there are certain elements in our society, most of them in the environmental side, that are implacably opposed to this project. They will always try to find legal um, reasons for getting some form of injunctive relief or other requirements to cause an endless redo of the environmental assessment process. So there's always that shroud. But what I will tell you is... If TransCanada is successful in dealing with this um, event that arose this past week in uh, coming out of the state of Montana, and is also successful later this year in ensuring that one other piece of lit- litigation that is unfolding in the state of Nebraska about the authority of the state regulatory commission to change the route, they get past those two pieces of litigation, then I believe most of the identified major legal encumbrances are out of the way, and that we could start construction, as I said before, in the first quarter of next year. That's that's what, you know, in terms of those of us who have so long wanted this project to get built and make a contribution to Canadian, getting a higher net back from its oil sands resource, um, that's kind of where we stand. So I think the Montana event is doable, manageable, but we'll have to see how that unfolds. I thank you so much for your time. Dennis McConaughey, former Executive Vice President of TransCanada, the author of Dysfunction. Thank you, Dennis. All the best. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Yesterday, Andrew Scheer was a guest on this program, and we had an exclusive interview with the Conservative Party leader, the federal leader, to get to the bottom, or at least try to get to the bottom, of the uh, confrontation that seems to exist between the two men. (laughs) It just seems. The two men being Maxime Bernier and Andrew Scheer. We know that there's a disconnect, a serious disconnect, between the liberal leadership and the conservative leadership. Although I saw a photograph yesterday or earlier today of Mr. Scheer and Mr. Trudeau in a buddy-buddy handshake 
It looked like they were going out to beer for, for, for beers together as opposed to being in conflict with each other to govern this country. Anyway, Andrew Shear was on the program, and one of the things I asked him was about what the chances were that this convention, the conservative convention in Halifax next week, would end with Maxime Bernier no longer a member of the Conservative Party. Have a listen. Uh, Maxime Bernier has a choice. It's his choice. Uh, it's his choice as to whether or not to uh, to work as a team, to, uh, to 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 work at these things collaboratively. To to if he has a view on how we should be communicating or on what to to bring that forward, as every other member of Parliament in our caucus is, is asked to do. So that is going to be no doubt the the political story of next week, where the national appetite for what happens in the world of politics federally in Canada is going to focus on the difference, different views of Maxime Bernier and Andrew Scheer. And with this considerable support that still exists in the room for Maxime Bernier, this is going to be tricky territory for Mr. Scheer and for his uh, followers to create an exit for Maxime Bernier, if in fact that turns out to be what they want. J.J. McCullough is a political cartoonist, Washington Post columnist, pundit, uh, has a YouTube channel, and uh, I, I follow him on Twitter. And he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. JJ, how do you uh, how do you interpret what's going on between Bernier and Scheer, and specifically these these six tweets? What is this What is this resulting in? Well, I think what is what is sort of the main takeaway of it is really independent of the ideological dimension of the problem. I think it really a lot of it comes down to a clash of strategies. I think that you see when you spoke to Andrew Shearer, and I think folks that just heard that clip of him right now, know that Andrew Shearer, by temperament, is a very cautious person. You know, he was not for nothing uh, Speaker of the House of Commons, you know, which is a job that is all about sort of moderating and mediating disagreement. That is his basic disposition. And sort of the disposition of his political strategy, of how he thinks that he'll become prime minister, and certainly the people around him think that they'll be able to sell him as a, as a prime minister and beat Justin Trudeau, is as this guy who doesn't rock the boat, who is not controversial, who is not provocative, who doesn't poke at any wounds or pick at any scabs, but just kind of runs the sort of the path of least resistance and presents himself as just a broadly palatable alternative to sort of what is perceived as the obnoxiousness of Justin Trudeau. And I think what you're seeing with Maxime Bernier is that he is someone that has a much more sort of different, uh, you know, internal constitution on sort of these sorts of matters, is that he is someone who likes being provocative. We've always seen this. His entire political career has been defined by taking provocative stances, taking stances that he knows will agitate some people, you know, irritate some people. And he thinks that this ultimately is how, you know, you make the contrast with Trudeau. You don't try to fly under the radar and get elected by default, but you sort of, as, they, as, as Ronald Reagan once said, you know, you paint in bright colors, not in pale pastels. And so I think that's kind of the, the uh, sort of the root of this. I get the feeling, and if I just go by what I've read, what I've heard, what I've seen on Twitter, and what I've read in my emails, is that Maxime Bernier has strengthened his position significantly over the last week, more so than Andrew Scheer. Or then again, perhaps it's just, I don't want to be the person who says on the other hand, but then again, it could be that it's that it's just Bernier's followers are far more outspoken and far more willing to get into it. I think there's a huge dimension of that, but I think that the question that it ultimately comes down to is sort of well, where is Canada? Where is Canadian public opinion on these matters that that Bernier is trying to provoke a conversation on? And so when people talk about you know this being a potential you know risk for Sheer that this is going to cause political problems for him down the line. What I often wonder about is like, okay, I can accept that premise, but where, what is the, what is the root of that problem? Is the problem that Bernier is saying these wild, radical things that are going to turn people off the Conservative Party? Or is the problem that Scheer is seen as clamping down on very mainstream, very ordinary opinions that your average Canadian expresses and doesn't really think twice about it? So I think that there is kind of, there's sort of two sides of that dilemma, because I think that the the whole concept of running a, as running a uh, sort of cautious campaign can be successful in some ways, but it has its own risks as well. And I think you're sort of really seeing a tension between that risk-reward dynamic. You, uh, you wrote a great column in uh, the Washington Post, or for the Washington Post, Cautious Conservatism in Canada Won't Outshine Trudeau, and that was on uh, the 17th of this month. 
you, you write in part that, and you just mentioned this, that maybe one of the ways they're trying to operate the Conservative Party now under Andrew Scheer is to let Trudeau get into as much trouble as he can possibly get into and then just get out of his way and let him continue to get into trouble. But as I go over the last few days, I wonder who's paying the political price here over, this, over, the, over the Bernier tweets. Is it, is it the Conservative Party or is it, does Trudeau just skate away from this particular incident almost scot-free? Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And it goes to back what I was saying just a moment ago, sort of how is this, you know, if we're going to call this a crisis, how is the crisis perceived? Is it perceived as being, you know, uh, Bernier is sort of tainting the Conservative Party with bad ideas? Or is it that Scheer is emerging as a weak leader? And I think as long as we're having that discussion in some form or another, sort of the meta takeaway that, you know, Trudeau will be happy to capitalize on and, and, you know, sort of liberal voters or voters inclined to vote liberal will be happy to capitalize on is just this idea of like a party in disarray, that the Tory party doesn't really know what it stands for, doesn't really know how it wants to sell itself, you know, torn by internal divisions on some of these big questions about the nature of Canadian society and what kind of country we want. And so I think in some ways, yeah, Trudeau might be, uh, you know, laughing all the way to the bank because I think that historically... What we have seen, one of the great truisms of Canadian politics, is that the, the right in this country does not do well when it's divided. And the maximum sort of beneficiaries of that are liberals. And I don't think it necessarily has to manifest in the form of two competing parties, as we saw with the, the PCs and the reform, but just a kind of stark internal division within the party itself where people are not really on the same playbook. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a conservative, as, as most people know, and you are. You're a conservative yeah. thinker. You're a conservative thinker. When I saw what happened at the end of the convention and we saw how narrow the victory of Andrew Scheer was over Maxime Bernier and the two of them stood up together, I thought, this is going to be trouble. This is going to be trouble. Now, I don't know if it's yeah. going to be the, I don't know if it's going to be progressive conservatives and, uh, you know, the alliance again, Canadian alliance again, but the feeling was, this is going to be trouble. Well, I mean, one of the interesting things about it just is that uh, I don't think anybody really expected these issues, which is to say, just for anyone who perhaps doesn't quite understand what we're getting at, because we haven't really gone into that explicitly. But, you know, Bernier is raising questions about multiculturalism, diversity, immigration and issues surrounding that, suggesting that, you know, there is not perhaps enough integration, that perhaps we've started to sort of worship diversity as a positive unto itself rather than think about, well, can we make diversity work for the country and work for a common culture and this sort of thing. And I do think what is a little bit surprising about this tiff is that I don't think people expected Bernier to be the avatar of those concerns. I think people, you know, perhaps expected, you know, Kelly Leach, who was very much associated with those kinds of issues during her leadership run, whereas Bernier was associated with, you know, a sort of libertarian brand. You know, he was obviously very strongly against the dairy cartelism. He's been very pro-free trade and that sort of thing. But, you know, libertarianism historically is generally pretty, you know, open-minded when it comes to immigration. If anything, it tends to be for open borders and not be, uh, be on the side of things like assimilationists, which they would think the state has no responsibility in doing. So I think that there is a criticism to be made here, even though I'm broadly in agreement with, I think, the criticism that Bernier has been bringing up. There is a kind of criticism to be made that this seems a little bit just like small P politics, that Bernier is a very canny operator, wants to build a brand for himself has a sense that this is kind of where the party's base is at, maybe more so than his esoteric policies on, you know, dairy uh, cartelism. And so that's kind of how he's trying to sort of reinvent himself to be relevant in a, in a sort of new age. Okay, so the last question I was going to ask you is, do you, what are the chances, do you think, that the election campaign next October is going to be uh, featuring in, in very stark uh, colors the idea of the diversity program, that it's not going to be something that's going to be fading to the uh, sort of to the edges of the campaign, that it's going to remain front and center throughout. I think there's a very strong chance that that, that you're 100 percent true, that that will be a very prominent uh, theme of the election, only because I think Justin Trudeau and I think wrongly, but I think Justin Trudeau thinks that Canadian public opinion is, is on his side when it comes to these sorts of issues. You know, Justin Trudeau has been promoting, you know, massive increases to immigration, this kind of very multicultural, non-judgmental policy towards assimilation and integration of new Canadians. You know, polls suggest that the Canadian public is not really on his side on these issues. But, you know, the Conservative Party, if it's racked with internal division on these questions to the point where it is incapable of engaging with the Trudeau position and is just kind of status quo all the way or like, let's not rock the boat, let's not say anything provocative, then I do think ultimately Canadians will be ill-suited. 
because I do think that this is a, I would love to see an election fought on these issues. These are substantial issues that I think need to be adjudicated by the Canadian democratic process. But that's not going to happen if you have one side that is very passionate, the liberal side, and then you have the other side, which is the conservative side, which is just kind of mushy and incoherent and doesn't really know what it wants to yeah, Exactly. Well, well, you also wrote a, a column in January of 2017 uh, for the Washington Post, Justin Trudeau isn't the liberal hero the world makes him out to be. If that image of him continues to suffer or somehow comes crashing down around him, then he's got really serious troubles. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Although, uh, you know, the thing is, is that Justin Trudeau has vulnerabilities on the left. That wasn't exactly what the, the argument I was making in that column. But I think it's true. But the point is, is that, you know, there is no real strong resistance coming from Trudeau's left. Because Jagmeet Singh, I think we've seen, has been quite a failure. He has sort of not uh, met the expectations that a lot of pundits, such as myself, leveled on him. We thought he was going to be this big sort of dynamic force that would really hurt Trudeau from the progressive side. That hasn't come true. So I think that even though Justin Trudeau does have a myriad of failings on, on his sort of left-wing flank, he's not really feeling much pressure for it. And so I think as a result, he is free to sort of just be the person that he wants to be, run a very authentic campaign, present himself as his true authentic self, warts and all. But, you know, people have problems with that. But again, in the contest of a binary choice between a flawed Trudeau and a conservative party that doesn't really know what it stands for, isn't really willing to have the courage of its convictions to offer a coherent alternative, you know, I think that looks pretty good in the prime minister's favor. Yeah. JJ, thank you so much for the time. Thanks for having me. JJ McCullough. You'll find him on uh, Twitter. You'll find him on, uh, on YouTube. And you'll find his columns in the Washington Post. Kaylee Cresta is engaged in the world of beauty and simultaneously suffers a chronic illness which causes her muscles to retract with such intensity it has broken her bones and caused her lungs to pop. Stiff person's disease. It's very rare. But Kaylee is an incredibly eloquent voice for the millions of intractable pain sufferers whose medications are being denied. And you can listen to Kaylee explain what it's like for her and what her thoughts are and her appeal is on her YouTube channel, but she's here with us now on The Roy Green Show. Kaylee, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you, Roy. When I was, uh, when I was listening to you and watching you on, uh, on YouTube, everything you said, everything you said encompassed what I've heard for two years. What I've heard, from, what I've heard from patients, from their family members, from, from physicians who are actually on the patient side, but often are too afraid of medical authorities to, to come on the air and talk about it. Um, let me just quote something to you from your email to me, and this, maybe we can begin, begin there. You okay. wrote, I would say the false stigma associated with the relationship between chronic pain patient and opioid use is certainly one of the things I care about most. Would you speak to, to that, please? Absolutely. Um, I think that this stigma, it extends so far beyond just a prescription pad. It goes into when we have to walk into a pharmacy, we are met with such severe anxiety for the 30 days in between prescriptions. We can be humiliated in a pharmacy. We can be humiliated by a doctor. It's, it's terrible because the opioid epidemic has two very different and very distinct sides. And because drug-seeking has become this term that holds so much weight, it's something that's thrown around so easily, we always have to be afraid of it. People aren't thinking that somebody that takes opioids, they can be your teacher, they can be your friend, they can be your family member. And the only reason you don't know how sick they are is because of that opioid. We are regular human beings and we're just trying to be functional members of society. We're just trying to live whatever semblance of life we have left. And the stigma that's been put on mainstream media is just portraying this entire crisis as only one thing. And they're two very, very different things. And if a chronic pain patient uh, seeks assistance and goes to a hospital, for example, and asks for help, for help, for medical help, that's why the place is there, 
I've heard time and again, I've heard these patients say, they accuse us of being drug seekers and throw us out. Exactly. And you, you could not be more right on that because so often you will hear an emergency room say that they do not treat pain. And you said something at the beginning of this segment that, that was so perfect, and that is that people that are not in chronic or intractable pain cannot possibly understand what it feels like. Chronic pain is 10 out of 10 pain. It's the most acute pain you've ever felt, except it, it never ceases. It never stops. And sometimes that can become so unbearable. And what do you do when you're sick? We're taught our entire lives that you get sick, you go to a hospital. If you're in such pain that you can't even think through it, it would only make sense to go there. But hospitals don't treat pain now because of that stigma. And they're not willing to treat pain. You can have two different doctors in an emergency room, one who desperately wants to help and will administer pain medication, and one that doesn't believe in them because of the inflated statistics that they've heard. What happens to you? What's your Explain your, your illness to us, please, and what happens to you. I've used one or two lines that I gleaned from you or from writing about you, but explain to us, please, what happens to you. So my disease is characterized by very, very intense muscle spasms. Now, those can take on a few different forms. One of them can be dystonic movement, things like twitching and um, rapid convulsions. Other ones, I can become literally stuck in the same position for days or even weeks. So there will be times that my body will bend in such unnatural ways. I mean, ways that nobody could get their body in, a contortionist couldn't, um, all the way bent over backwards, for example, in an O, and I will stay that way. As the spasm gets stronger, it just pulls my body more and more into that unnatural position, and that's how bones break, that's how structural damage gets done. In those spasms, the only thing that can break them is higher than, and I'm using this term, very lightly normal dosages. And that's that's another problem there is. Doctors and a lot of the general public has a threshold in their mind. And those thresholds are actually being, being enacted when one size does not fit all. So my disease, let's say they administer what they would consider to be the appropriate dose. Well, that's not going to break spasms of that strength. And when my lungs collapsed, it was because of the opioid epidemic. It was because I had a doctor that didn't want to prescribe me the dosages that I needed at that time. And that is so true for millions of people. Kaylee Cresta is with me. It's at Kaylee Cresta on Twitter, C-A-Y-L-E-E-C-R-E-S-T-A. And Kaylee has a YouTube channel that you should go to and and hear what she has to say. Uh, Kaylee, when you, when you find yourself in, uh, in, in dealing with your illness and dealing with a spasm, that you, I'm trying to think of what it would be. It must be so horrific. Days and up to weeks, you're caught in these, you're in these incredibly unnatural positions that you have no control over. What does the medical community do for you at that time? Anything? I have been very, very lucky to have a doctor, um, which is not in my state, that I have to travel to every four weeks. He is an amazing man, and he has stuck by me. But there are so many doctors, so many doctors that I have gone to that have looked at me and said, your prognosis is so dim, this disease is so rare, and they're not willing to take me on as a patient because there's nothing they can do for me. And as this crisis gets more and more advanced that's only happening to more patients because for those of us that are out there that suffer from intractable and chronic pain there is one thing to do for us and unfortunately we would trade every last one of those pills for an answer to how to deal with our disease process but for some of us opioids are the only answer and so a lot of doctors don't want anything to do with me. 
So the doctor who doesn't want to prescribe opioids, it's simple for him or her. Solution is just ignore the patient. Exactly. Ignore the patient. I don't believe that's part of the Hippocratic Oath. I don't either. I don't either. And I just, I, what you said before about the suicide prevention, you made such an excellent point that the point here is that we have to stop people from getting to that place. And I think what the general public fails to realize about this epidemic is that these are people that have no other options. The only thing that can give them any semblance of a life is opioids. And so if you take those away, life is over. There are two options. Either you get your medication back or life is over. And I don't think people realize if they don't understand what pain feels like, if they don't understand the desperation when there is no hope, then you can't possibly understand what would drive someone to suicide. And the mainstream media seems to not care to understand. People living 30 days at a time. Exactly. And that is beautifully said because that is what we are doing. You wrote, people cannot fight, in an email to me, people cannot fight for their prescriptions when they've been taken away. There's nowhere for them to go where they'll be met with compassion and the understanding necessary to restore their medications. And that's medication. So you can't fight for something that's been taken away. You can't go to the very people who've taken it away and ask them to help you. And if you were to say to them, and it has happened, and I know it's happened because I've talked to the people or their family members mm -hmm. where they've said, Either I get my medication back or I'm going to kill myself. They still don't get the medication. It's just, yeah, whatever. Exactly. Exactly. And that goes back into the stigma portion of everything. And, and the stigma is really the driving force behind this. Because if you show any agitation whatsoever that your, your medication has been taken away, you're automatically labeled as drug-seeking. And that follows you. That follows you in your chart to every doctor that you will see subsequently. And Isn't... so where is there to go? What is there to do when people are facing this? This is horrific in particular since that same doctor who sent me that email also wrote that doctors, when they chat among themselves, uh, will talk to each other about what appears to be an increase in suicides among patients and former patients. So there's, um, this is really, dis this is a terrible injustice that is being done to many millions of people. There are some people willing to, are really now starting to fight back in an organized manner. But right now, as we speak, there are millions and millions of people who are living in absolute uncontrollable agony and the only thing that helps them is the opioids, which have been around for thousands of years, opioids which get to the pain receptors in their brains and make life bearable, bearable. Kaylee, we have about a minute. The last word is yours. Please talk to, talk to everybody. Um, the, the thing that I, I really want to say about the opioid epidemic is that this is a result of ignorance. And I don't mean that derogatory in, in any way. It's people are not educated. People are listening to what they hear on the mainstream media, and you're not getting the patient's perspective. The chronically ill population is one that everybody should care about because anybody can become a part of it. Chronic illness, chronic pain, it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care where you come from. It doesn't have anything to do with demographics. We woke up one day and we were sick. Every plan went out the window, every goal, every aspiration, and we had to build our lives back up from zero. There is no life without opioids for so many thousands of patients. This is a real problem that isn't being discussed. This is a real problem that's killing people okay. at the hands of doctors and I'm sorry, I, we are this time. No, we, we, we are this time, but we'll talk again. It's at Kaylee Cresta, C-A-Y-L-E-E-C-R-E-S-T-A, -E 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 and Kaylee has the YouTube channel. You're an amazingly eloquent spokeswoman, and I thank you. Thanks for coming on the program today.
Thank you. Take good care. Thank you. Kelly Cresta. I can't stop laughing when I read this column. And I can't stop reading it. And I can't stop identifying with, well, with the, the, the typist and the writer. Because the, the, the writer is, the, is a dog named Zoe. And the typist is Rex Hupke. He's an editorial columnist for the Chicago Tribune. And uh, I just have to read a little bit of the column. So if you haven't read it yet, you get some, some of the context here before we talk to Rex. I mean, this is so good. And it starts out, a quick note of protest to President Donald Trump from my large and very good dog. She dictated, I typed, as the size of keyboard keys are discriminatory against large pawed animals. More on that issue in another column. Dear large human president, I do not usually pay attention to human politics. I prefer more pleasant things like sniffing my friend's butts or rolling on a dead bird in the backyard or eating things that will make me throw up. Anyway, I'm writing because I've noticed that you keep comparing human beings to dogs. I know this because I hear the television news humans talking about it on almost every station. I can no longer watch Fox News because after many years of promise, I have yet to see a single fox I can bark at. That is false advertising, and I'm sad about it. I asked my human to collect a sample of the times you've called people dogs, and he did so while I barked at a squirrel. I hate squirrels. Can you please deport them? Just this week, you described Omarosa Manigo Newman, a human female persona who worked for you, as that dog. You also sent the following things on Twitter, which is something my human stares at when he should be scratching my me behind my ears or taking me outside of the park to bark at stupid terrorist squirrels. One of the tweets is Mitt Romney had his chance to beat a failed president, but he choked like a dog. Uh, I mean, it's so good, and it ends this way. There's so much. There's more in the middle. But it ends this way. Bad, large human president. Bad. I understand you're the first president since William McKinley not to have a dog. That's weird. You don't have any animal friends, and that makes me suspicious. In conclusion, and on behalf of all good dogs out there, I request that you stop referring to humans as dogs and start realizing that humans and dogs are both great and deserve respect and lots and lots of milk bones preferably the peanut butter-flavored ones. Thank you, and please consider any uh, my suggestion that you deport all the squirrels. I really do think they're up to something. Rex Hupke joins us from Chicago. That is the best column I have ever read anywhere at any time by anyone. Thank you. Hey, Rex? Where's Rex? Is he on the phone? Have we lost him, Rex? Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, couldn't connect Sorry with you for that. a second. That no, it's fine. That is such a such a great great column. And well, thank you. I, I uh, my dog thanks you, and uh, I thank my dog for uh, you know <laughs> being an inspiration. Well, I uh, my my email to you requesting you come on the program was, of course, dictated by my dogs Sledge and Hammer. Um, yeah, I like. That. Yeah, renamed for that the, particular email. One of the nicest uh, outcomes of this has been uh, both uh, via email and on Twitter and Facebook. I've been receiving a, an onslaught of uh, pictures of people's wonderful dogs uh, responding in kind. So it's been very nice. It's kept me entertained. You know, <laughs> as, as, I, as I'm looking at the photograph of Zoe, looking at, at, at the computer screen as, as you're typing, I... What came to mind was the dog is the common denominator. We all love dogs. Or just about everyone loves dogs. And the dog is credible because the dog doesn't know how to lie. The dog doesn't know how to fake it. The dog doesn't know or care to be phony. The dog's not political. The dog is just the dog. And sure. when we have a bad day, we talk to our dogs and we get solace from our dogs. They are the most, arguably the most wonderful creatures on the planet. So, as you were typing this for Zoe, what do you think she was thinking? What was behind this? Well, I uh, <laughs> I agree. I mean, I, I have to stay in anybody, character. Yeah, yeah. Anybody who owns a dog, uh, I think, knows sort of what they're thinking as they, you know, you become uh, very connected with the dog. I think, and 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 you start to understand each other. There is a, a communication that. That goes on, and and I do think that uh, Zoe, as well as any dog in its right mind, anyway, would would take offense to 
the term dog being used as a as basically as a put down or, or an insult as if that's a bad thing to, to say someone is a dog uh, or to say they choked like a dog you know to, to imply these negative connotations uh, relating to to dogs uh, just doesn't seem right so uh, uh, I felt uh, I felt that she felt very strongly uh, about this and uh, I don't didn't see anybody really bringing up the dog's point of view in all this of course a lot of people were criticizing uh with good reason uh trump's use of the word for for all manner of reasons but um but yeah it seemed to me that the, the dog the dog definitely had a uh had a horse in the race so to speak i guess they bring another animal into it <laughs> what's the bigger picture here now um behind this column what are you what are you saying about what's going on with your president oh well i think a, a big thing that's happening and, and it's pretty obvious to anyone who who isn't sort of um so soaked in the in the stew of of kind of pro-trump uh, propaganda that that he's dehumanizing people uh, he does that on a regular basis and not just via canine references uh you know calling uh, uh referring to to ms-13 gang members as animals in a broad, overreaching term, where you know, yes, you could argue that there are certain violent people out there who are horrible, of course. But you know, when you paint a certain group as animals, you are you are somehow dehumanizing them. You're making them lesser. You're making them other. And and frankly, that's just one of his. I mean, that's a key tool in his toolbox. He he does that uh, in all manner of different ways, and it's really awful. I mean, it's a very dangerous and and bad thing. I mean, look at he's calling journalists the enemy of the people he's he's you know doing everything he can to sort of pull people off and divide them uh from his loyal base and uh you know find ways to to demonize them or make them seem less than than other human beings so and that's just a again it, it's bad for anybody to do that i think but for a leader to do that is especially bad and then for someone in the office of the presidency <laughs> As sort of the top of the top of the food chain leader, uh, in a sense, it's really horrible. I mean, it demeans the office, and it, and it does a what I think really will be a lasting damage to, to people in this country and you know other countries as well. What do you say to the people who will um, who will argue? And there are times that you know when I look at what Mr. Trump does, and I'll uh, I shake my head there, and I mentioned it on the air, and and I become. Uh, I get attacked right away. There are times when I feel that what he's doing uh, resonates very clearly with people on a on a very um, fundamental level, and i i don't I don't think that we find too many people, Rex, that I know or listen to this radio program who would take exception. And I, I said this because of an email I got about when he called MS-13 animals after we found out what they did. Someone sent me an email and said, that is a disrespectful to animals um, because because of what they are and what they represent. Is there, is, is there, go ahead, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I mean, that's a, I, that's a reasonable argument that that person made, certainly. Yeah, I, I understand where they're coming from with that, yeah. Is there, uh, is there a sense in the U.S., that Donald Trump has reached his zenith and is flaming out? Is there any expectation that he, uh, logical expectation, that he will lose the presidency in 2020? That's a very difficult thing to answer right now, unfortunately, because so much is, there are so many moving parts right now with with Donald Trump. You have uh, investigations, obviously, uh, going full throttle in terms of, uh, things that he may or may not have done. Uh, you have his own uh, sort of chaotic nature where, like you alluded to, you, you wonder if he, he perhaps isn't going to just flame out. I mean, he does. I wrote a, a column at the end of the week this past week after the after I allowed Zoe to, to take the stage for me, my dog. Uh, I wrote another column saying that he's, he's manic right now. It's gotten worse. I was in my point of my column was to encourage some of our living past presidents to to maybe come together and start speaking out about this because he he does seem to be he's always this has been chaos from day one and it's been difficult for for those of us who do not 
like his approach, agree with it, or think it's worthy of, of the, again, of the office that he holds. Um, but of late, you're just with the re- revoking security clearance from, from a former CIA director, and just some of the rants he's been on lately have just been so unhinged that, that you do start to wonder, <laughs> like, when does this stop? Obviously, the Republican Party is not going to stand up to him. They've proven that uh, over and over again. Um, so I don't know. I mean, the the country, I, I've never seen our country this this sharply divided. You know, there's always division. There's always arguing and political disagreement. But there's never been anything like this. I mean, the I, it's reached the point where I, when I get email from Trump supporters, it's not even worth trying to respond or, or, or get into any kind of a conversation because, frankly, they will not believe when you present them with facts. Uh, they simply say no. If, if Donald Trump says no, then that's good enough for them. And he, or if any of his, yeah, so, we have, so we have it, Sorry, we have about a minute. Um, he sure. did win. He did win an election. He is the president of the United States. Hillary Clinton blew it really uh, for the Democrats, in my point of view. Um, deplorable's commentary didn't help at all. Yeah, I agree. I, yeah, I wrote a column when she said that. Yeah. That was just an awful. Uh, it just wasn't right. I didn't and, like that at all. And there's a, there's, a, there's a very fundamental feeling, among, a very visceral feeling among millions and millions of people that the way the world has been governed hasn't been to their satisfaction, certainly, and not, to, and not fairly governed. And so I think Donald Trump's election was largely, and I predicted it in February of 2016, on this program, um, I, I think it's it, it's a manifestation of that dissatisfaction with the way things are going, and it's a punch back. And now the question is, do, is it sustainable? And that's what we're. Yeah. That's why I'm so curious about 2020. I am too. I I, I, I would like to say no, it's not sustainable because uh, it is causing all manner of, of problems, and it is. I mean, there is a definitely a majority of the country that is. Uh, you know, being driven slightly bonkers by the day-to-day um, just zaniness of everything, mm-hmm. and and then the harm that's being—I mean, there's there is harm being inflicted on people uh, because of some of the things that they're doing, okay. and and divisions are being created. So, uh, yeah, I wish I knew. I, I, you know, his his base is strong. There's no question. So I don't think anything can be taken for granted yeah. in terms of of you know him flaming out or 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 carrying on. So. Well, Rex, thank you for joining us, and uh, please give. Uh Zoe and Milk Bonemark, buy her a box and send me the bill. I'll take care of it. That is uh, truly kind. They're on me. Most appreciative, I assure. uh, (laughs) No, it was great to talk to you. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, and uh, Sledge and Hammer send their best. Thank you so much. My best to them as well. Thanks for listening. The Roy Green Show is available wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you liked what you heard, tell a friend and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.